0: The following message is from Temple Bible Church. For more information about the church and its ministries, visit www.templebiblechurch.org. Appreciate our guys and the worship team leading us before his throne together. Amen? Amen. 1 Samuel chapter 8. If you have your Bibles, would you open with me to First Samuel chapter 8. We are doing a summer study called Prophets and Kings. We're looking at the interface of uh, different prophets with various kings. Uh, Two weeks ago, Stephen did an introduction for us. Last week, I did the interface between Moses and Pharaoh. This morning, we look at the relationship between a guy named Samuel and the first king of Israel, whose name was Saul. If you're new to TBC in the last uh, four or five months and have not been part of a Newcomers Brunch class, we'd love to have you join us. We do a brunch at our house about once every four or five months, and it's an opportunity for you to get to meet some of the pastoral staff and some of the elders, and uh, we sent out a card in the mail this week. Some of you received that. If you did not, if you'll raise your hand. We've got ushers. If you're new in the last four or five months, haven't been part of this, raise your hands, keep them high. These guys will find you, give you one of these. We ask for two things from you. Number one, that you RSVP so we know much, how much food to prepare. Number two, it's an adult-only event, but child care is provided here. But in your RSVP, let them know how many kids you will be bringing to child care. And if you're bringing the child care, you come to our house, you don't go have brunch somewhere else. How's that? 1 Samuel chapter 8, we are studying God's Word together, and I've uh, entitled this message, uh, King Us, for obvious reasons, as you'll see in one second. Beginning in verse 1, open your Bibles, your apps, whatever you have of first Samuel chapter eight. It came about when Samuel was old that he appointed his sons judges over Israel. The name of the firstborn was Joel. The name of the second was Abijah, and they were judging in Beersheba. His sons, however, did not walk in his ways. They turned aside after dishonest gain and took bribes and perverted justice. Then all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah. And they said to Samuel, Behold, you've grown old, and your sons are not walking in your ways. Now appoint a king for us to judge us like all the other nations." Just a little overview. The nation of Israel has been led by judges. They have been a theocracy. Theos theos means God. Uh, The one who represented them or ruled over them was God. And now they're asking to become a monarchy. They want to want a king. They want somebody to be their king. So up until now, God has led the nation. They've had different judges, and now we'll see the appointment of the first king of the nation of Israel. If you were with us about three years ago, we studied the life of David. We looked at uh, some of this passage together. Some of these passages. Together, and we're going to revisit that and take a look at the interface between Saul, the first king of Israel, and Samuel, the godly prophet. Father, as we look at the word, we've worshipped you in song, we've gathered together with our community of believers that we love and care for. And Father, now we pray that you would teach us from your word. Father, I pray now that you would open our hearts, our minds, and our ears to hear from you in Christ's name. Amen. The nation of Israel wanted a king. They are crying out, "King us!" They are like a three-year-old ignoring the warning of their parents, and they are screaming out, we want to be led by a king right now. They, they ignore the warning of the prophet. And by the way, by ignoring the warning of the prophet, they're ignoring the warning of God. We saw last week in our study that the Hebrew word for prophet, the Old Testament was written in Hebrew. The Hebrew word for prophet is nabim, it means to bubble within. Basically, the prophet spoke the words that God had given him. So whenever the prophet was rejected, God's word was being rejected. And we come to this particular section of scripture and we find that the nation of Israel made a poor decision. They made a poor decision. They made a poor decision because they chose a king who was externally attractive but internally bankrupt. We, too, make poor decisions at times. We make a decision to quit a marriage. We make a decision to be unequally yoked. We make a decision to lash out in anger. We make a decision to purchase something and put our family deeper in debt. We make a decision to look for peace in a drink or in a a smart or in a partner that we shouldn't be with. And we, too, make poor decisions at times. When we reject and ignore the warnings of God, we place our families in jeopardy, we place our lives in jeopardy, we place our church in jeopardy, and we place our nation in jeopardy. And basically what happens in the nation of Israel, based upon their choice and their demands of wanting a king and wanting a king right now, they place themselves as well as their nation in jeopardy. And so when we look at this particular section of God's word, we're going to see the demands of the people trump what God desires for them to have, and God says they want it, give it to them. And they elect Saul as their king, not elect, but God appoints him as their king at their demand, and Saul becomes a very impulsive, disobedient man. In fact, later on in Samuel, God will say this about Saul, I regret that I have made him king. I regret the day that I made Saul king. So let's back into the story and see how they got there when God would say, I regret that I made this man king. God's warnings to the people, first of all, he says uh, that he responds to the demands of the people, the demands of the people. A description at this time would be that the people were on a long drift away from God. That, that drift is recorded for us in the book of Judges in the early chapters of 1 Samuel. We've just read the first five verses, and we can see that Samuel's sons were perverted. They were not seeking after the truth of God. They were seeking after the ways of the world. And so they were perverting the truth of God and following after him. In verse 4, the elders of Israel come together, and they tell Samuel two things in verse 5. First of all, you're an old man, and secondly, your sons don't walk after God like you do. So Samuel, we've got a problem. We need a king and we need a king now because you're old and your sons are ungodly. Now there is nothing wrong with the nation of Israel having a king. One day they would be given a king. Years before 1 Samuel chapter 8 was ever written in Deuteronomy that God had made provision for the nation to have a king one day. So centuries before, the book of Deuteronomy was written. It was during the time of Moses or shortly thereafter. And what we find in Deuteronomy 17 is a provision for a king one day. It says, one day you'll enter the promised land. The Lord your God's going to give it to you. You'll possess it. You'll live in it. And you'll say, I'll set a king over me like all the nations who are around me. Now, mind you, these words are written hundreds of years before 1 Samuel chapter 8, but yet we find them totally fulfilled in chapter 8. You shall surely set a king over you whom the Lord your God chooses. That's the kicker. The king you want should be the king that God chooses. One from among your own countrymen, you'll set him as king over yourselves. You shall not put a foreigner over yourselves who is not one of your countrymen. So what we find is that the people decide they want a king. The problem is they're not willing to wait upon God to choose that king for them. Really, the nation has two problems when it comes to choosing a king. First of all, their motive was wrong. Secondly, their timing was selfish. Their motive was wrong, their timing was selfish. Gary, where do you get that from? I get that from the end of verse 5 and also from verse 20. Now appoint for us a king to judge us like what? What's it say in your Bible? All the other nations. We want to be like all the other nations. And if you go to chapter chapter 8, verse 20, it says, We want a king that we may be like all the other nations, that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight in our battles. So the first thing we see is that the nation of Israel wanted a king, and, and they wanted a king with the wrong motive. They wanted to be like everybody else. They weren't seeking a godly king. They weren't seeking a king with experience. They weren't seeking a, uh, seeking a king who was a spiritual leader. You don't see that anywhere in the text. All they say is, we want to have a king because we want to be like all the other nations. Kind of reminds me of my kids when they were teenagers. Uh, Dad, we want to go and do that because everybody else is doing it everybody else is doing it uh, and then I would turn to them and say something that I said I would never say because my dad said it to me and I would say my son happens to be here today and I would say Daniel if everybody was gonna yeah there you go how many of you said you'd never say that and you said it to your yeah there you go right there Hey, let me tell you, students, something. you got to be more creative than that, okay? you got to be a little more creative. I, I remember I, I told my dad, my dad said, if everybody jumped off a bridge, you can jump off a bridge. And I, I smart aleck back to him and said, uh, yeah, I would. We had time out at my house. Time out was when he put you on the floor after you said something like that. It would not be sent to a room, I'm going to tell you that. But you, you gotta be more creative. You need to do what my son did when he was in high school. We were the last family in Temple, Texas to get cable TV. Uh, he finished high school in 98, 99 actually. Uh, senior year 98, 99. And he came to me and said, dad, for, said, get creative. He said, for my senior year, what I really want is for us to be able to watch Sports Center together every night. <laughs> I went and signed up for it the next day. What would you do? I mean, I did the same thing. So, so you've got to be a little more creative than uh, everybody else is doing it. But the nation of Israel is not creative. All they said is everybody else has a king. We want to be like everybody else. Their motive was wrong. Secondly, their timing was selfish. Timing was selfish. They, they wanted a king right now. They, they didn't want to wait. Basically, they were rejecting God. In fact, if you drop down to verse six, it says, "This thing displeased Samuel when they said, "Give us a king' and Samuel prayed to the Lord, and he said, "Lord, and the Lord said to Samuel, "After that, listen to the voice of the people in regard to all they say to you, for they have not rejected you, they have rejected me from being king over them." Basically, what Samuel is saying, he said, God, I, I I I can't stand these people anymore. They are turning their backs on me, they're turning backs on you. And God, it's wrong. Their timing was wrong. They were too impatient. They wouldn't wait for God to choose a king for them. ever get impatient with God? <laughs> a few of us do, not many. Here's the reality. There are times when we get so impatient with God, God, we want it, we want it now. God, I've prayed, God I've asked, God I've sought. But, God, you have not answered, or maybe you've answered with a caution light. Not a red light, not a green light, but a caution light. I hate caution lights. I either want to stop, I want to go, I don't want to be caught in the middle. And sometimes God says, that's why we sang that song, wait upon me. Perhaps the best counsel I can give to some of you right now is to wait. To wait. Wait before you can go and file that divorce. Wait before you quit that job. Wait before you make that purchase that's going to put you in further financial bondage. Wait on that engagement you're not sure about. Wait on changing your major for the fifth time in the last week. (laughs) Just wait. Wait on leaving that small group or that Bible study or that ministry. Just wait upon the Lord. Wait and let him lead you. You often i like a little girl named Mary Jane. Mary Jane saw that her older brothers and sisters could read, so she went to the first day of preschool. She came back all excited. She picked up a book, and she began to look at it, and she slammed it shut, and she said, I still can't read after a day at school. <laughs> you ever feel that way with God? God, we've sought you. God, we've wanted to hear from you. God, you're quiet. And sometimes the silence of heaven is difficult for well, the nation didn't wait and it had sent the prophet into distress the demands of the people are followed by the distress of the prophet samuel looks up and he says god look at my people look at these people in verse six it says these things were displeasing in the sight of samuel that the berkeley says samuel was distressed with the people he was distressed they wanted to follow after their own, pat, their own pattern, their own desire, their own way, rather than submitting themselves to God. And so God said to Samuel, he said, they're rejecting me. They're not rejecting you, Samuel. And I'm going to tell them what's going to happen to them if they really want a king. Samuel, there are warnings that have gone out, but they're ignoring the warnings and they're desiring to trust in themselves rather and follow their own desires rather than me. So Samuel, I want you to give them some warnings. I want you to give him some warnings. You ready? Look at these warnings. He says beginning in verse 11, if you want a king, you can have a king, but it's going to cost you. It says this will be the procedure of chapter 8, verse 11. If you're going to have a king reign over you, he's going to take your sons and, put a, and place them in chariots among his horsemen, and they'll run before his chariots. You want a king, you can have a king, but we're going to inscript your sons to be soldiers and go to war. You want a king, you can have a king. Verse 13, he's going to take your daughters and you're going to put them to work in the palace as perfumers and cooks and bakers. You want a king, you can have a king. Your sons are going to go to war. Your daughters are headed to the palace to work you want a king, you can have a king. Verse 14, he'll take the best of your fields, the best of your vineyards, the best of your olive groves, and he's going to give them to your servants, he's going to take a tenth of your seed and tenth of your vineyards and give them to his officers. And in verse 16, he's going to take your male servants and your female servants, your best young men, and your best donkeys, and use them for his work. In verse 17, he's going to take a tenth of your flock. You want a king, you can have a king, but it's going to cost you. It's going to cost you your sons, your daughters, it's going to cost you your livestock, it's going to cost you your fields, it's going to cost you your produce, like the irs does i he's gonna take everything you've got and he says that you can have it if you want a king you can have a king but here's the warning the warning is this it's going to cost you dearly it cost you dearly you want to follow your way instead of my way the warning is there are consequences to pay you know what we see in the word of god is that there are many warnings In in these warnings, we see their consequences. Let me give you two examples. We could pick out a hundred. Here are two examples. Here's a warning. Don't be deceived. God is not mocked. If a man sows, what a man sows, he reaps. If he sows after the flesh, he'll reap things of the flesh. If he sows after the spirit, he reaps things of the spirit. Why would you expect blessing when you're sowing after the flesh? Why would you expect cantaloupe if you put cucumber seeds in the ground? If you sow after the flesh, you reap after the flesh. I have people walk in and tell me, Gary, my life is a mess. I mean, it's just a mess. I understand what God is doing. And then we begin to talk. Well, I've been doing this, this, and this. Do you walk with no? And and they lay out this, this resume of sinfulness and this resume of separation from God, and they blame God for the consequences of their sin. Scriptures are clear. If you sow after the flesh, you'll reap after the flesh. If you sow after the spirit, you'll reap the things of the spirit. Here's another warning. Don't be bound together with unbelievers. What partnership does righteousness have with lawlessness? fellowship has light with darkness? What harmony does Christ have with Satan? What has a believer in common with an unbeliever? What agreement has a temple of God with idols? Basically saying you shouldn't be unequal yoke. We use this passage to apply to marriage often, and it's a good application, but it applies much broader than that. In the context of 2 Corinthians chapter 6, it's talking about way more than marriage. It's talking about relationships with unbelievers, being bound to them. Why would you do that? Why would you? To my single adults out there, college students, application's pretty clear. you're a believer, they're not, that relationship shouldn't happen. Business guys, you're a believer and they're not, why would you bind yourself together when they worship one idol and you worship the living God? And so when we look at the Word of God, it comes replete with warnings. The problem is there are times we hear those warnings, but we don't want to heed those warnings. Let me say that again. We hear the warnings, but we don't want to heed the warnings. There was a rather cocky agriculture representative that came from Washington, D.C. to a rancher in West Texas. And he came to the rancher in West Texas, and he told them that he was here to inspect his ranch. And he got ready to walk into a field, and the rancher said, if I were you, I wouldn't go in that field. And the Department of Agriculture worker pulled out a badge and he said, I represent the U.S. Department of Agriculture. I'd go anywhere I desire on agricultural property. He opened the gate and went to the field. About 10 minutes later, the old rancher heard the guy screaming and he was running towards the fence with his prize bull chasing after him. <laughs> the bull was madder than a nest of hornets and he was gaining every step. The representative screamed out to the rancher, What should I do? What should I do? The rancher put his thumb in his overalls and he said, Why don't you pull out your badge and show it to them? <laughs> That's the way we are with God's warnings. God's word is clear. Don't be unequal yoke, but we're unequal yoke. God's word is clear. Don't sow after the flesh, but we sow after the flesh. God's word is clear over and over. Don't covet, yet we covet. And we could look at a hundred different warnings in God's word. But the reality of it is what he's looking for is a heart that is knit to his. He's not looking for religion. He's looking for a heart that is knit to his. And that became the problem in the nation of Israel. Their desire was not for a godly man. Their desire was for a man that looked good. And if you drop all the way down to verse, to verse 1 of chapter 9, it says there was a man of Benjamin whose name was Kish, the son of Abiel, the son of Zeor, the son of Bacchara, the son of Aphiah, the son of a Benjamite, He was a mighty man of valor, and he had a son whose name was Saul. A choice man, a handsome man. There was not a more handsome man among all the sons of Israel. From his shoulders up, he was taller than any other people. I want you to look at two things there. I want you to see what it says about Saul. What's it say about him? Good Lucan, tall dude. And some of you women are saying, well, that's not a bad king, really. I mean. But what does it not say about Saul? No mention of spirituality, no mention of godliness, no mention of pursuing the Savior. No mention. And so what they said is, we want a good-looking guy to ride on the horse at the front of the parade so we go in the battle, we can say we have a king like everybody else, and we want it right now. And so you see the demands of the people, the distress of the prophet, and the desire of the people, and God gave them what they wanted. God turns to Samuel in chapter 8, verse 22. He said, listen to their voice and appoint to them a king. And what they get is a maniacal monarch. They get a crazy man. Think of a crazy man. I mean, he is so up and down. He is so manic at times and depressed at times. It's absolutely amazing. Two episodes in his life that I'll draw from. One was an act of blatant disobedience. It was a sinful sacrifice. It's in chapter 13 of 1 Samuel. nation of Israel is going to do battle against the Philistines. Samuel has told Saul in chapter 10, verse 8. It's in front of you on the PowerPoint. You shall go down before me to Gilgal. That's where they're going to have a a rendezvous. And behold, I will come to you, and I'll offer burnt offerings and sacrifice peace offerings. So Samuel the prophet says, I'm going to come. I'll make the offerings prior to gone to battle. We're going to worship before we go to war. And here's what happens. This is 1 Samuel chapter 13, beginning in verse 8. Now Saul waited seven days according to the appointed time set by Samuel, but Samuel did not come to Gilgal. So Saul's getting a little impatient. I mean, the prophet is not there to offer the sacrifices to worship before they go to war. So what does Saul do? He takes things into his own hands. He is a king. He assumes a priestly role, which the word of God has forbidden him to do. In fact, the prophet has said, wait for me, I'll come. And rather than praying to God, there's no indication that he prayed to God. Rather than waiting for the prophet, there's no indication he sent messengers to find the prophet. What he does in verse 9, he says, bring to me the burnt offerings and the peace offerings. And he offered the burnt offerings themselves. The reason he did that, the end of verse 8, because his people were beginning to scatter. He was afraid his army would leave him, desert him. And so he offered the offering so they could worship and then go and do war. As soon as the sacrifice is offered, guess who shows up? The godly prophet Samuel. He shows up. And he says, what is this thing you've done? Verse 11. And Saul said, I saw the people were leaving and that, that you didn't come within the appointed time and the Philistines were assembling a big match. They were going to do battle. And so I said, now the Philistines will come down upon us and I've not asked the favor of the Lord. So I forced myself and I offered the burnt offering. And Samuel said, you've acted foolishly. You've not kept the commandment of the Lord that he commanded you. He wasn't going to establish you and your kingdom over Israel forever, but now your kingdom shall not endure. It's been taken away from you. Samuel saw what you've done, Samuel says, is you have done that which you're not. So you didn't obey the commandment of God, and the result is there's consequences to your sin. It seems pretty harsh, doesn't it? He says the kingdom's going to be stripped from you. You're not going to reign as king anymore. You're going to lose. There's a second episode in Saul's life that shows how maniacal he was and how focused he was upon himself rather than upon God. It's an act of partial disobedience found in 1 Samuel chapter 15. In 1 Samuel chapter 15, the word of God is clear. Samuel goes to Saul, and he says in verse 1, The Lord sent me to anoint you as king over his people, over Israel. Listen to his words. You shall go and punish the Amalekites for the thing they did against Israel. In verse 3, go and utterly destroy the Amalekites, all that are there, men, women, children, infants, oxen, cattle, sheep, and donkeys. Go and kill them all. So God's command is once, once again clear to Saul, and go and destroy everything. What does he do? half hearted obedience. Look at verse 9. Saul and the people spared Agag the king, the best of the sheep, the best of the oxen, the best of the fatlings, best of the lambs, all that was good. They were not willing to destroy them, but they despised everything that was worthless, and they utterly destroyed those things. They kept the good things and got rid of the bad things. If it was something they wanted, they kept it, basically. So what happens? Guess who shows up? Samuel comes again. The first time, Saul has offered a sacrifice he shouldn't offer. The second time, Saul has had half-hearted obedience to God. God has said, destroy everything. He destroys something, but not everything. The result of all that is, Samuel comes up on the scene. And he lies, to, he li- he's lied to by Saul. Look at verse 13. Blessed are you of the Lord, I've carried out the command of the Lord. No, you didn't. You didn't do it. I mean, Saul looks at Samuel lies to his face says, I did what God asked me to do. And Samuel says, if that's the case, why do I hear that? (laughs) You think I'm stupid? Do you? You know, we see that happen all the time. Saul had the opportunity to confess his sin. Instead, he blames, he justifies, he rationalizes, and he denies. You know what he does? He throws his people under the bus. If you look at the next verse, look at what he says in verse 15. They, meaning the people, have brought them from the Amalekites, for the people spared the best of the sheep. What kind of leadership is that? I mean, here he is, caught red-handed, lying to the prophet, and what he says is, it's the people. It's their fault. And he blamed his people. He threw them under the bus. By the way, this started all the way back in the Garden of Eden. All the way back in the Garden of Eden. Adam, why would you do that? It's the woman you gave me. And in one sentence, Adam blames both his wife and God. And men have been doing that ever since. But wait a minute, ladies. What does she do? Uh, God, it wasn't me. It was that snake over there. And you've been doing the same thing ever since. Saul, who is this? Why would you do it? It's the people you gave me, God. It's their fault. And we've been blaming people ever since. There's a man who decided that his wife was getting harder hearing, so he decided to test her. When she was in the living room watching TV, he sat in a chair the opposite end of the room behind her where she couldn't see it, and he whispered, can you hear me now? There was no response, so he came closer, and he whispered, can you hear me now? And he came closer a third time and said, can you hear me now? Still no response. Then he was right behind her, and he whispered, can you hear me now? And she said, for the fourth time, I heard you every single time you asked me that question. You know, he's blaming her for his issue, and we've been. Some of you need to go get hearing aids as a result of that because you're having that discussion in your house right now. I know you are. Your wives keep coming to me. I can't tell how many women. Can, Where'd you get your hearing aids, Gary? I need to send my husband to get them. We've been blaming ever since. Ever since. When you are found in sin, the scriptures say the thing to do is to confess. And repent. Not blame, justify, deny, or rationalize. Some of you found in sin right now. Hey, you slept with somebody this week you're not married to. That's sin. You took something that didn't belong to you. That's sin. You went to work and you spent more time on Facebook than you did working. That's sin. You you got an argument on your way to church today. And you were mad as a harnet when you walked in that back door. In fact, you weren't even talking to one another. Then you saw me and said, Hey, Pastor, good to be here. <laughs> Am I reading your mail yet? That's sin. Some of you, so distant from your sons and daughters, your grandkids, and you really don't want to reconcile. That's sin. The scriptures say when you're confronted with your sin, you confess, which is agree with God, and repent, which is turn from it. Instead of rationalizing, justifying, blaming, and denying. In Samuel the prophet speaks the word of God into the life of Saul and says, Does the Lord have as much delight in your religion as in obedience? You you think it's a good thing to show up to church all the time and live like hell out there? That's what he's saying. Does the Lord take as much delight in your burnt offerings and sacrifices, that's their religion, while you're getting wasted night after night, while you're living a life apart from God? One of my greatest concerns about living in Central Texas is that we are smothered with religion, but don't have righteousness. We show up, we make the formations, but there's not internal transformation and change. And I don't know about you, but I want way more than just to be a good Boy Scout. Too many preachers talk about moral things and they want behavioral change in their congregation. I don't talk about behavioral change. I talk about heart change because if your heart beats for the Savior, your behavior will, will, will look that way as well. So we're not going to speak a bunch of moral platitudes and say go and live this way and look that way. We're going to say go and be transformed because when transformation takes place, then you'll live a life of obedience. I think this section is here for a couple of reasons. I think this whole section teaches us a couple of things. First of all, first of all, when you look at this section of God's word, it teaches us that the nation chose a king out of selfishness and patience. They wanted to be like everybody else. They were selfish and impatient. They were impulsive. They didn't do what God wanted to do. They did what they wanted to do. And whenever that happens, there's chaos, there's calamity, and there's tragedy. Secondly, this is a lesson about God. It's a lesson about a gracious, merciful God who, even though he was rejected by his people, he would then pick another king, a man with a heart after his, named David. And David is a selected king of God. David had his issues, and we're going to see that next week when we look at David and his confrontation with the prophet Nathan. But this is a gracious God who told Samuel, they're rejecting me, not rejecting you, but that gracious God says, you know what? These are still my people, and I will supply for them. Just as he says to you, you're still my people. Don't run from me. Run to me. And this whole section teaches us the Father knows best. His way is always better than our way. His way is always better than our way. The Father knows best. So if you're a baby boomer, maybe you remember that program. <laughs> the program called the Father Knows Best. Father was always right in that program. Scriptures teach us that this Father knows best. He knows best. A number of years ago, there was a restaurant in uh, Market Square uh, shopping center over here called Casa de Castillo. Remember that good Mexican food over there? And uh, some of the folks that ran it came here years ago, and uh, at that time we could afford a whole lot, so we'd go there after Sunday church, and you could split an order of fajita nachos, and we'd get out for ten bucks. Kids could get tortillas for dessert, put honey in it, and uh, drink water, and we were in business. I'll never forget, there was a time when we got there and uh, Daniel and Sarah were little. We came here when uh, he was three months old and she was two years old. And I think she was probably about uh, four and he was about two. And our fajita nachos came and uh, Sarah was now in a booster seat and a high chair. And she reached over and she picked something up out of that plate of nachos, a little green thing, a little sliver, a little pepper called a jalapeno. So here's my four-year-old daughter with a jalapeno in her hand, and she was our strong-willed one out of the two. And when she picked it up, I looked at her and said, Sarah, you don't want to do that, sweetie. And she looked at me, and she looked at jalapeno, and she looked at me, and she said, no. I said, Sarah, you don't want to do that, sweetie. No. Her hand got about halfway there, and I had a decision to make. Do I knock her hand away, or do I let her do it and teach her a lesson? I let her do it and taught her a lesson. She got there, and I'm going to tell you, you could have woken up the dead through all the temple taxes. I mean, that thing got hurt. Ah! She's screaming. And you know what? She never did that again. <laughs> the father knew what was best. But she didn't listen. She learned. Hey, that's us. The father knows best. Why would we not listen and follow after him Relinquishing total control to Him instead of demanding what we want right now. Father, I pray that for myself first. There are times when I get impatient. Times when I say no. Times when I want what I want when I want it. And I confess that before you and to these my brothers and sisters. Help me to become a patient man. And for others here, Father, who know Jesus, who love Jesus, but at times become impatient and we want to do what we want, when we want, how we want, we confess that to you. Is that your confession this morning along with mine? God, I want to wait on you. I want to trust you. Or maybe your confession this morning is, God, I've been religious, but I'm living my life apart from you. I'm sowing things of the flesh. I'm reaping things of the flesh, and I'm tired of it. I'm tired of being a man or a woman who talks about you but doesn't walk with you, who shows up at church but doesn't live righteously. Transform my heart, oh God. If you're here today and you're not sure if Jesus Christ is your Savior, I want to pray for you right now i want to pray that your eyes will see, your ears will hear, your heart will be open to trust Christ as your Savior for the forgiveness of your sin. So maybe you just need to confess this morning. Maybe you need to be saved this morning. Father, I intercede on behalf of these, my friends, some that need to know Christ for the first time and be freed of the burden of sin. Others of us who've trusted Christ, but it's hard to wait. It's hard to relinquish control every day. And we confess that. We quit justifying, we quit denying, we quit blaming, we quit rationalizing our sin. And we say, make us men and women who resemble a Savior so that a lost and dying world will see Jesus in us. That's our prayer. In Christ's name, amen. You're dismissed.